Hello, this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch. A dog watch is an evening shift of early or late duty, or the people who undertake it. This dog watch considers the natural world and the things that help us experience it, from dogs to watches, and everything in between. Ultimately, it's a place for us to go wherever curiosity takes us. On this episode of The Dog Watch, we visit with Chris Elfring, the creator of The Lockby Company, which creates fine notebooks and accessories from waxed canvas and fountain pen-friendly paper. Before we start our conversation, this week we feature two dogs of very different breeds and sizes, Lyric, a standard poodle, and Coda, a papillon mix. While not the most extremes in dog sizes, these relatively common family dogs highlight the wide range that domestication has created. The papillon may be only 10 pounds, with a poodle up to 70, a remarkable range in size for adult animals of the same species. I also wanted to give a shout out to one of our most ardent early listeners to the Dog Watch, Christina from Philadelphia. Thanks for listening, Christina. And now, let's get down to the conversation with Chris Elfrey. Our guest today on the Dog Watch is Chris Elfring, the founder of Lockby, a company that produces premium notebooks and accessories out of waxed canvas. He's also a confirmed notebook and fountain pen enthusiast and a six-year U.S. Army veteran. Chris, thanks for joining us today on the Dog Watch. Thanks for having me, Mike. Well, are you in Florida right now? I am, yes. How is it down there? It's it's getting cold here in Minneapolis. I bet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm originally from Minneapolis and um, moved here several years ago. It's Right now, it's really nice. Um, it's starting to get cold for Florida, but obviously nothing compared to Minnesota. So yeah. It's great. Well, it's nice to have both of those extremes in your background. I would think, you know, it's, you can appreciate the the warmth at this time of year, but it's pretty, you know, the fall's pretty anyway. So as you know, but, um, wonder if we can start by talking a bit about the history of your business and kind of how it developed. How would you start describing the genesis of, of lock B? Sure. Um, so I guess it goes back to, um, really before I started lock B, I had a company called bond travel gear and we made travel bags um, and that was back in 2016 is when I started that. I, I was just coming out of corporate America and wanting to kind of venture off and start my own thing. And I ended up moving to Asia, uh, specifically Vietnam, where I could partner with a factory. So I wanted to meet some of these factories in person yeah. and um, just kind of, I think that helps with the prototyping and also just trust, building trust and I thought that was an important thing. So I moved to Asia to start making these small bags and pouches for travel, um, which eventually turned into Lockby. Mm-hmm. And and part of that process was me discovering fountain pens and just really getting back into journaling and sketching. I used to draw a lot when I was a kid and kind of rediscovering that passion that I had. And that forced me to do a bit of a, a shift in, in the business do a bit of a pivot. And so that's where Lockbee was born out of. Lockbee was started in 2019. Um, so pretty recently. Yeah. And it's been off and running ever since. Yeah. It seems like it's gotten quite a, a good start. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to ask a couple questions about both those sort of pieces. First of all, like what led you to this, the 
you know, bag, a travel bag company, the bond company originally? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, I would, I would say, um, I guess to back up, I was, a- after college, I was in the military for six years, as you mentioned. And I think that background really influenced my decision to go into bags. I was always kind of a gearhead. Um, I like backpacks and I had a bunch of them, but it also goes back to my time in the military. I just like carrying stuff that lasted a long time. It was really durable. Um, I could, you know, take it all over the world. And so that's kind of where it came from. Um, I knew against, you know, wanting to do my own thing. Uh, I always liked creating things, being creative, doing things with my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just kind of started being interested in travel, obviously going to Vietnam and then wanting to create bags that would support that type of lifestyle. Yeah. So maybe a, a little question about Vietnam. I'm curious kind of what that looked like. Like what what was it like to be in Vietnam partnering with a, a company, a factory there? Can you paint the scene at all? I, I'm just curious. I read about that part of your background. I was just, just wondering um, if you can describe it a little bit. Sure. Yeah, it was it was a fun adventure. Um, I talked to a lot of companies, a lot of different factories, some big, some small. Um, and because I didn't really know anything about this industry, um, it was it was challenging at times. You know, there were some language barriers, of course, but I had interpreters and we were able to communicate effectively. Um, but it was a challenge in that because I was so small, some of the larger factories didn't really want to talk to me because they have. MOQs or minimum order quantities. And, um, you know, so some factories said, hey, you have to purchase at least a thousand, five thousand pieces in order for us to take you seriously. And I, I just didn't have the funds to do that because I didn't try to raise funding or anything. I was just, you know, bootstrapping this the whole yeah. time. So I'm um, just going off of my savings. But I was just saying it was just really fun. And finally, I, I did partner with a company. Uh, that didn't work out, but then I found another one. And, you know, you can never really get it right or perfect the first go around, I'd say. But after a while, I, I do have some trusted partners that I work with now. Yeah. So similar, they're the, some of the similar comp- companies are factories. Right, right, yeah. exactly. So that's an interesting thing. So you kind of had this idea, you had some plans for some travel bags, and you went over to Vietnam and started interviewing companies or factories that might make those for you. Is that right? That's right. Yes. It takes a lot of guts, I guess. Um, I guess <laughs> it actually wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. Really? Um, so again, since I have no background in this stuff, I thought, I thought it would be difficult, but then, you know, a lot of it is just kind of communicating. So I design all the products myself and the first drawings that I made were actually in Microsoft PowerPoint because it's the only <laughs> software that I knew how to use. So it was, it was completely amateurish, but it was, I think, enough to communicate what I was looking for. Uh-huh. And so, you know, eventually, you know, again, with the prototype, it wasn't right the first time. So there was some back and forth and being face to face in Vietnam was really helpful for that process. But yeah, after just communicating, building trust, I think it, it was a lot easier than I thought it would be. And I guess you would said at one point in some of the literature I read that the soft goods factories or whatever. I, I don't really know what that means. If I, I'm pretty sure you used that word or somebody used that words to describe um, some of the factories in that area of Asia that do a lot of work. What does that mean? 
Yeah, so soft goods typically would be backpacks, um, cut and sew products. So, I mean, you have apparel, like something you'd wear like a shirt or pants, um, which actually there are a lot of those in Vietnam as well. Um, but then if you look at things like backpacks, bags, um, our accessories, and then our field journal, for example, it's it's this wax canvas cover. So it's the same process where you, you cut and sew. Um, that's where a lot of the top factories in the world are, actually. They're in Vietnam. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. A couple qu- other quick things about that era. Um, did you get to travel and see Vietnam and, and that part of Asia? Absolutely. Yeah, that was a big part of the fun and why I wanted to move out in the first place. Um, I spent a lot of time in Thailand and then in in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. But I did travel around the region as well. Wow. So, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun for sure. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, and then, you know, it sounds like you, out of that um, initiative, got some factories, right? And those persist. Are there other things you learned from that first process of making the travel bags that really helped you once you made this transition? And we can talk, I want to talk to you about the fountain pen and, and all how that shifted. But are there things you can look back to and say, like, I really learned X, Y, or Z that helped me in my founding of Lockbee? Yeah, I think it was just having the experience to choose the right partners. So for example, my the first factory that I worked with, um, in the beginning, it was good because there were quick turnaround times with the prototyping. And so I love that. And that's why I, was, I, I committed to them and, and life was good for a while. But then they started, you know, their lead times were longer, things were starting to get slow. And then um, there, there were certain issues that I, <laughs> we ran into. Um, and I, I would say I just learned from that negative experience. And so I was able to carry that forward in choosing the right partners going forward from there. Okay. Yeah. It seems like that's one of the most important pieces of something like this is finding someone who can help you enact the vision. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that trust is the most important part. Right. How much back and forth is there? Like, do they make a large number of, like, is it, you know, here's my drawings, they make um, a bag or a notebook, and then they send it to you and you say, no, here are the three tweaks, and there might be one or two, or are there many sort of iterations of something like that? Yeah, I think um, as a designer, it's kind of up to you to communicate as effectively as possible. Usually if there's a lot of back and forth, it's the designer's fault, I've found. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always taken responsibility for that. So in the beginning, there was more than there was later on. But part of that too is, again, going back to the communication, it's that they don't really know what you're looking for until you work together for a long time. Right. Um, so I would say uh, it depends on the factory you work with too. I, kind of what I was saying before is I... None of the big factories wanted to talk to me at all. So I I partnered with a smaller factory and I was actually in the factory, you know, in the offices, like with the sewing machines and sitting down with them, hmm. uh, you know, going back and forth. So, you know, they would sew something one way and say, oh, no, I want this double stitch or I want this bar tacked right here. And I could point to it on the product and then they could just take it right back to the sewing machine and fix it on the spots. So that was really helpful. You know, if you were to start this, say, from the U.S., and partner with someone overseas, I think you miss out on some of that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, and it, just efficiency-wise, you you know, we, it would have to be an iteration, right? Like they send you something, and then you make some markups, et cetera, rather than a sort of a, a live process, which I could see being much more effective. Exactly. 
Um, so you talked about how then, you know, you were kind of in Vietnam, et cetera. Can you say more about the pen thing, like the genesis, like you'd, you'd done sort of fountain pens and journaling when you were a kid, then you found it again. Can you describe like, did you just happen on a fountain pen? Did you have some notebooks that you started working on when you were in Vietnam or like, what, what was that not just moment, but just that process look like? I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, I don't know honestly how I discovered it because I'm I'm in my 30s and so most people my age or younger haven't really used fountain pens or grown up with fountain pens. And so I was obviously in that boat as well. And then for some reason when I was over there, I I think I just walked into I've always been a fan of art materials and stationery and that kind of stuff. So I think I just walked into a shop and happened upon it and I I use uh normally just regular ballpoint pens mm-hmm. and the fountain pen experience was totally different. It was just so smooth and, you know, it would glide effortlessly across the page. And so um, I was definitely smitten from the start. And then I tried to figure out, well, first I used fountain pens on regular paper and I, I noticed right away there was a problem. Usually with lower quality paper, it would bleed through and feather. Um, and so I tried to figure out, okay, well, what kind of paper can I use with this new pen? And so that kind of sent me down a rabbit hole. And because I couldn't exactly find what I was looking for, I ended up just making what I wanted for myself. Hmm. So I was really my first customer. And then (laughs) once I was able to, again, partner with the factory on that, um, we were kind of up and running. And I actually created the the notebook, the field journal with Bond Travel Gear. But once I knew that that would become more of a focus, that's when I decided to rebrand to Lockbee and and make that pivot. Did it look similar when it was the Bond journal, or have you made a lot of changes in it? Well, with the field journal, it is it is quite different. Um, I mean, it's about the same size. So it's an A5 notebook, Yep. but the uh, Bond had, it was a zip-up case, and it was nylon. So with that's the other thing with Bond travel gear. It was mostly uh, kind of a tactical nylon look, and that's because that's what I was used to from the military. But with Lockbee, I wanted to change the look and have more of a heritage feel to it. And so that's why I went with the wax canvas. Um, and so I guess the look and feel of it is a bit different. I also wanted to use the, uh, I have these elastic bands where you could put different refills in. And that was one thing that was important to me because I like that modularity because I like to draw, but I don't want to use the same notebook to keep my planner in or you know, make design sketches in. So I, I like to have a different refill for each function. And so I've had people describe the current iteration of the the field journal as kind of like a trapper keeper for adults. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you ever remember that, I but do. when I was a kid, yeah. Uh, yeah, we would kind of separate our subjects in school, right. you know, using these trapper keepers. And so that's kind of the same concept, which is you can have, we make a dot grid refill and a ruled and a plane and a planner. And so you could have these different formats, but all in one notebook. Yeah. So you don't have to just, you know, buy one notebook and be stuck with it. Yeah. It's, I mean, it works really well. And I, I would say if listeners have not experienced the field journal, that this is, this is not like the concept is like a trapper keeper for adults, but the quality and execution um, an experience is, is, is a, is different in kind. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's just, um, uh, you know, I, I think that's an, an awesome thing. And I've used a, a lot, the, 
the elastic, right? So you can just pull things out easily, right? Pull up, pull one notebook out, put the other one in, or have two or three or four in there, but then sometimes just have one, which is a nice exactly. flexibility. And and that came in that transition to Lockbee, you mean, or had, had you experimented with that when it was still in the previous iteration? That's right. That came with the pivot to Lockbee. That's awesome. Um, you know, you mentioned a, a few other aspects of the of the journal itself um, that, you know, you talked about, I think one of the things I wanted to ask about is the waxed canvas. And I don't, you know, we've interviewed um, this pair, Alan Gauthier and Nancy Burkett at this place called New England Reproofers, where they reproof um, wax cotton jackets, et cetera. I'm a big fan of wax cotton. It's kind of my favorite fabric. Aside from sort of moving from the tactical nylon look, to a more heritage look, why the wax canvas? And I say that be- with all love for the fabric, right? I, I see that as a, a huge, um, I don't know, selling point. It's beautiful, right? And it patinas, like you mentioned on your website. What other options did you explore? And then why did you ultimately choose this one? Or, or maybe you just said, oh, I think we'll do wax, wax canvas, and that was that. What, how did that come about? Yeah, so actually my first journal that I ever made, it was by hand, and I made it out of leather. And that was back when I was in in business school. And it's just something that, again, I like to be creative. I like to make things with my hands. And I thought it'd be kind of a cool thing to do for myself, just to learn leather crafting. And, you know, it was great in a lot of ways, but there were some issues. And one of it was, you know, just kind of heavy to schlep around everywhere. And so, but it was the same format. It was basically like the field journal is now it, it had the elastic bands in there where I could put different refills mm-hmm. in. So I already had that modularity concept back then, but it was made of leather. And so um, that's obviously one choice. Um, I could have gone with leather, but because it does have that heritage feel also, and it does patina, it, it looks nicer with age, but I think there's some reasons why I didn't want it. One, it's too heavy. Um, two, it's not very good out in the field. Like it, it leather doesn't do right. good under, you know, rain, for example. And so when I had Bond Travel Gear, I did nylon because it kind of, um, some of its strengths were the opposite in that it's lightweight and it does great. It's abrasion resistant, it's water resistant, but then I wanted something kind of in between where, um, it's got that old school charm and that patina that it gets, it looks better with age but then it still is lightweight and is practical and functional. And so I thought that wax cotton or wax canvas would be kind of that nice in between. Mm-hmm. So you kind of went directly to it. You didn't try out like 50 different fabrics or whatever. You kind of knew that what might be an option. Right. No, I, I went basically straight to oh, wax cool. canvas. Yeah. And it's a, you know, I think that it's a great, a selling point in the sense that it's not super common for this kind of things, but um, it certainly is a heritage thing out of sort of the outdoor um, as an outdoor fabric. Right. Um, Absolutely. So one other quick question, you mentioned that the, the previous um, notebooks from bond, et cetera, zipped shut. And when I first started using my field journal, you know, I opened it up, I was looking at it, I was like, oh, it doesn't zip shut. Like I, you know, I kind of thought, oh, maybe this would zip shut. And I wondered how that would work. And since like, it makes perfect sense that it doesn't zip shut. I've never thought, you know what I mean? Like I'd never have come back to that and said, oh, why doesn't this zip shut? It seems to, 
um, be a, an important feature that it doesn't. So I'm curious how you made that decision, whether it was just a practical one or whether you sort of intentionally said, look, we don't want this to zip shut for these reasons. Yeah, it was more of a practical design element. Um, one of the issues with putting the elastic bands along the spine is that it takes up space that a zipper would normally take. Mm. So, so that's part of it. But then also, you know, I had discovered these these metal hooks to use as closures. Yeah. And I really liked using that because I had created the the tool roll, um, which we do have with LockB as well, but it was also with Bond Travel Gear. And I used that, that metal hook for the tool roll. And I really liked that it's secure and you could tighten it with the with the nylon strap. Um, so in that sense, it keeps everything secure without having to use a zipper. Also, a zipper is more likely to break down. Yeah. Um, we, we do have zippered products. Like I, I think they're useful in some cases. For example, we have what's called a pocket journal, yep. which is a small, smaller notebook uh, used to house three and a half inch by five and a half inch uh, small refills. And I think it works perfectly in that situation. But I thought for the field journal that the uh, the hook, the metal hook closure would have been a better choice. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I'm curious about one of the other questions that I had is about the metal hook. So you mentioned that you came across this metal hook. Is it uh, something that existed? Is it a, a general design that you tweaked? Um, how did that, because it's a distinctive part of the field journal especially, how did that come about? Right, yeah, it's definitely that existed before. I I came across it. I'm not exactly sure how, to be honest with you. Um, I know it's been used in backpacks before, and that's probably where I saw it first. Uh, I, I've never seen it used on a notebook or um, anything like that. So I figured because, you know, it doesn't break down like a zipper, I think it could have been useful for something that you carry out in the field all day. And it, it's not that you necessarily have to be hiking with your notebook all all the time, but you know, you just throw it in your bag. You kind of you throw your bag in your car, and these things get jostled around. So yeah. it is nice to have something that's rugged. Um, and if it's overbuilt or over-engineered more than it needs to be, and so I figured that would be a good good use of that hook. Yeah, and it, it also aesthetically, I think it's just distinctive and it looks cool. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sort of well, thank you. That. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, I, I think yeah. that's it's nice because. Um, on a journal like this, that there's some other feature that I think calls attention to its uniqueness. And that for me, at least that's, that's something I really like. I think it looks really um, nice. So a um, couple other design questions. Um, when you were looking, especially at the field journal itself, you had obviously in the, under the front cover and under the back cover, you probably have pretty much unlimited possibilities for types of pockets, numbers of pockets, the way you sort of organize that space. You you settled on a fairly simple, like streamlined design, right? Where the under the front pocket, there's, there's a Velcro pocket with mesh and then several other small pockets, a sleeve pocket, and then the back, a sleeve pocket. So I'm curious, how much did you play around with that? Or kind of how did you settle on that design? Yeah, I definitely played around with it a lot. Um, I I like things to be very functional. And when it comes to the field journal, especially, I wanted it to hold a lot of my stuff, just something that I, I might carry with a notebook. So um, as I mentioned before, I was traveling quite a bit at the time. And I, you know, I, I love to read books. And I like physical books, but that's not really practical when you're 
living out of a backpack. So I had yeah. a Kindle and I knew that I wanted to fit my Kindle in there because I take notes in my notebook as I'm reading my Kindle. So for example, that first um, left-hand pocket will fit a Kindle oh, or e-reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the pockets, the kind of smaller pockets, it'll fit business cards or credit cards. So that's just kind of a practical thing. But then there's a, a taller pocket in the back, which actually perfectly fits a passport. Again, that goes back to just travel. Right. Um, but that size is also good for our smaller pocket journal uh, refills also. Yeah. And so the way I typically design any of our stuff is I'll try to figure out what is it that I want it to do? What do I want to carry? And then I'll lay all of those items out just on the table by themselves. And I'll try to rearrange them in a way that makes sense in a product. Huh. And, um, you know, I think you'll see that in the tool role, for example, a lot of the... Uh, Things the pockets were sized for a very specific reason, and we'll be coming out with some pouches next year, actually early next year, um, as well as a watch case. And so these things are, you know, I, I just try to consider, okay, what is it that I want it to hold, and then let's figure it out from there. Okay, I'm going to get to those the questions about what's coming because I'm pretty excited to hear what's next. Um, but I still wanted to ask a couple more questions, like. You have a couple of colors, right? Different colors. How how did you decide um, which colors to offer, and how you know what's your what are the favorite colors of your customers? Like which ones do you sell the most of? Sure. Yeah. So we we went with the brown for as kind of our flagship color, um, and that that is the most popular. I think the thing with the brown is that. You know, it's almost like a, a notebook that Indiana Jones would have carried. Yeah. It's very classic when it comes to wax canvas. Um, one of the nice things about wax canvas is that on certain colors, like you can see the scratches easier than you can yeah. on other colors. So we yep. came out with black because black goes with everything, but it doesn't necessarily have that waxed canvas look that you get with the brown where you can see the scratches really easily. And so uh, we do have black. Well, actually, we're, we're shifting black to charcoal now, which is basically the same thing, but it's a little bit lighter. Um, just so you can see some of those scratches and it patinas a little bit better. And then um, and the navy just kind of made sense too, because that's more of a classic wax canvas color. People will give us ideas all the time. And I love listening to those ideas. Um, and because we're a small company, we can't do all of them, but I do want to come up with more colors as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think also the nice thing about the brown, it really contrasts with the sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, the orange um, in the internal fabric that has the the hexagonal sort of honeycomb on it. Um, right. Whereas, yeah. it, you know, some of the other ones, there's a, I guess there's a, a much more significant contrast um, between those. Definitely. You know, and that's that's one of the things too, in terms of the interior color, that's what I learned from doing bags, which was you want to have the interior really bright because... If you ever, let's say you have a black backpack and you, you kind of dig into it and the interior is black, you can't really see the contents very easily. So that's one thing that I try to do from just a functional standpoint is try to have a really bright interior so that you can see. It's not as important on, say, a journal, but when we start coming out with some more of our pouches, you'll see that in play. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Quick question. What? How would you describe back stitching and bar tacking? Because you you talk about those in your you know in, in your descriptions, et cetera. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we talk about well the double stitching. Um, 
would just be on, say, the edge of the binding. Uh, most companies will do one row of stitching. We do two because it's just more durable that way. You know, if okay, because nobody's perfect, right? So these we make all of our products. They're all handmade in the sense that humans are making this. And so if a stitch comes out and you have a backup stitch, that's just you know kind of a practical thing to do. Right. The um the bar tacking is actually. Uh, you, you'll see it on like your loops on your blue jeans. So bar tacking is used typically for really high stress points. And so again, a, a journal, you know, you probably don't need it necessarily, but I like to add it because it's just more likely that it's going to stay together for your life. Okay. Yeah, that's, and where would I see that? Is that on kind of the loop, for example, of exactly. the pen loop? It seems like that's tacked on there pretty, pretty tight. Well, the pen loop, the, the elastic loop is actually not. But if you look at the the loop where the hook um, hooks into, that that's ah, all bar tacked. Right, right. Yeah, so I you see, see that zigzag pattern there. Yeah, yep. and it's the same. Yeah, exactly. It's the same thing on your loops on your blue jeans. Right. Cool. I hear. Is that a dog that you have? Yeah, I have a German Shepherd. Awesome. What's what's yeah. his, his or her name? Her name is Belle. Belle. Yeah, she's two right. years. Great. She just well, two. That's perfectly on cue for the dog watch. We love dogs. So. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, one more thing about the paper, right? You talked about the importance of it. And I don't even know how you say the, the name, but the T- Tomo River 68 GSM, right? That's what you settled yes. on. And I'm curious, right. you know, for someone who is not yet... Um, a, a fountain pen person, right? Like in the sense of like really in the weeds on it. What does that mean as far as like the GSM piece, but also how important is that? You alluded to it some, but I'm curious what you can say about that particular paper and and how important it is and how different it is from other things. Because it sounds like it's like super specific. It is, yeah. And Tomoe River paper is legendary in the fountain pen community. That's how I discovered it. And the reason is because it's got a kind of a coating on top on the surface. And so when you write with something that has a liquid ink, like a fountain pen, um, it's it's going to be less viscous. So on, like I mentioned before, on normal paper, it'll bleed through to the other side or, you know, it'll start to feather out. And you don't want that if you're a fountain pen user. So Tomoe River paper is really good for that. And there are other companies that make good fountain pen paper. But in my experience, this paper was the best in making sure that it didn't bleed, but also showing the attributes of the fountain pen ink. So one of the benefits of using a fountain pen is you could have, you know, infinite number of colors and you've got shimmer and sheen and all these different attributes that if you're into fountain pens, you you really appreciate. And so you want that to show by having the best paper. And that's what Tomoe River paper is. Um, in terms of the GSM, that's grams per square meter. So that's just the weight of the paper. Okay. Some papers are thicker than others. And uh, the paper that we use is relatively thin, but, you know, sometimes people think, oh, if it's thin, it's not good. Well, that's, that's not really the case. It's how you engineer the paper. Right. Um, but it's still thin, so you could fit a lot of pages into a small space. Right. So, and it's not so heavy for a notebook. Exactly. Yeah. So to, I, you said Tomoi or wh- whatever, that is a brand of paper. Is that right? That you that's right. Yeah it's, a, yeah. it's a company in Japan. And actually, they're not going to make that paper <laughs> any longer, unfortunately. Oh, no. So yeah, what are you going to so, do? Well, that's the funny thing is in the fountain pen community, people are stocking up and it, it's a big deal. And so yeah. uh, we're looking for other sources of paper. And I I do believe, so I've been doing a lot of testing, but I believe we have a suitable replacement. Okay. It's another Japanese company that's great with 
great with fountain pens. So we're going to okay. be releasing that next year as well. All right. Well, so, that's good to know. So yeah, we'll be okay. Um, so about the bee connection, right? I'm I'm sort of trained as an insect biologist and entomologist, so I I have a natural um, affinity for that piece of it. I'm curious, kind of, did that come out of the hexagonal shape, or or uh, you know, f- like of the of the the material, or was the material to echo that? And and also for people who haven't ordered yet, um, the packaging and and sort of presentation really is is pretty fun right because that shows up in in what you get when you open your package so i'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that piece sure yeah absolutely so initially the b came from people mispronouncing the name lock b so lock b is spelled l-o-c-h-b-y and um loosely it translates to lake town and it, it comes from minneapolis which is where i'm from but because it's spelled L-O-C-H-B-Y, people weren't sure how to pronounce it. And so I said, uh, it's lock B, like a lock with a combination lock, and then B, like the animal B. Right. So that's that was first where it came, where the idea came from for the logo. But also it's, you know, just industriousness and community. I think that's some, some of the things that the B represents, which I appreciate. And that's why we wanted to use it as a logo. The, the actual hexagonal pattern, you know, I do use it a lot as a kind of a design cue. Yeah. And um, so we use it on our refills just to indicate like what kind of refill do you have? What If it's blank, you know, it's a plain refill. If it's got the dots, you know, it's a dot grid and so forth. But with the with actual liner fabric, we do have a hex ripstop nylon. And I knew about ripstop nylon from before from the military, but also with Bond Travel Gear, we used a ripstop nylon. And the pattern that comes from ripstop, usually it's just in a grid. And it's, again, it's very practical. The idea is that if you do get a tear, um, th- that grid will stop it from continuing. So you can't just pull the whole thing apart. Right. And so I wanted to continue using ripstop nylon. Again, you don't need it for a journal necessarily, but it will last a lot longer in case you do get a tear. And I, I discovered this hex pattern uh ripstop nylon i thought okay this would be perfect so yeah that's where that came from right and that's not a super common pattern for ripstop i don't think is that right um not super common but yeah. it's not too rare either okay um but I, just, I think just having that honeycomb look on the interior um kind of tied it all together so. yeah especially with the sort of goldish color on the brown notebooks is it's just it's honey you know, right. So it's, I really like that. So, and you've got the stamp, the B stamp that comes with the, when, you know, when you package things, et cetera. So it's a nice touch. Right. Um, yeah. Thank you. Another totally random question. Do you ever have on fountain pens? Do you ever have them leak onto the tool roll or et cetera? Or, you know, I don't use them that much. Or is that not a big issue? Um, that's not a big issue. I think it's, you know, it could happen, of course. I think it happens more when you're trying to put ink into your fountain pen. Okay. But if you have a high quality fountain pen, it's not going to leak on you. So, um, but if it does, you know, you, you can kind of wash it off. The nice thing about fountain pen ink is that it's water-based and typically it's not permanent. So you can wash it off fairly easily. Yeah. One while we're on that subject, one thing I thought for listeners who might want to get into fountain pens, right? Be like, oh, this is cool. I'm gonna, you know, get get one of these journals that has paper that would accept it and and do really well with it. Is there an on ramp for fountain pens that you might suggest? Like, 
if I wanted to get into it, right? I've had a few cheap ones from the, like the, you know, I don't know if the drugstore or something when I was a kid or whatever, but if I wanted to get into it, um, is there a place that you'd recommend starting? Yeah, I always recommend basically the same three fountain pens. One would be the Pilot Metropolitan, um, the Lamy Safari, and the Twisby Eco. And those are, the reason I recommend them is because they perform really well. So they're high quality fountain pens, but they're at a reasonable price. Because if you go down the rabbit hole, you'll see that you can spend a lot of money on these things, just like anything else, you know, any other hobby. Sure. You're going you're gonna to pay for quality. But I would say those three are definitely great starter pens. Okay, cool. And would get used, you know, a lot of the way there. So I'll link those in the, um, in the notes here um, sure. as well. So you mentioned also that um, you get suggestions from customers. And I'm curious um, kind of what those suggestions are. Are there any really good ones that you've incorporated or that you can share or any particularly oddball stuff that people say, oh, you should do this. And you're like, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine doing that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I we've we always listen to our customers because um, they have a lot of great ideas. And one example is on the field journal. So you have an older one. And in fact, yours probably is different. Oh. But um on, on mine, on the newer one, uh, what we did was we changed where we put the hook keeper. So on the field journal, you've got this hook, but when you unhook it and you're using it, you kind of have this, you know, hook flopping around yeah. and it, it's just kind of annoying. So what I wanted to do is put a little loop where you could kind of hook it into so that it's not flopping everywhere. And okay. in the old version, it was on the back of the field journal. And that might be the version that you have. Okay. The problem with that is that because now the hook is on the backside of your journal, it kind of creates a bump as you're writing. So it's a small thing, but it is annoying. So one of my customers suggested, hey, why don't you put that loop on the inside of the back cover and then it won't create that bump. And so that's just a small thing that we were able to incorporate based on that feedback. Hmm. And let's see, there, there are probably a few examples of that, um, but then there are some outlandish things. Mostly it's, People want uh, a product for their sp specific thing. So a lot of uh, things would be like iPads. Okay. And I think it's it's a good idea to create some kind of a case for an iPad. The problem is that, you know, technology is changing all the time. Whether it's an iPad case or you know the sizes, the dimensions, right. we'd have to we'd have to stay up to date. And um, again, as a small company, it's just kind of hard to do that to keep iterating on that type of stuff. Yeah. So that's one thing I do try to stay away from. That said. I probably will come out with something. I, I, I'm kind of noodling on some things and I do want to um, fulfill some of that. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, that's exciting to think about. And I'll ask you about that in a second. But I, you know, since I have a captive audience here, I thought I'd throw out a couple things here. I'm curious whether you've thought about either colored paper or a stationary insert with bee or honeycomb header and also and this is the oddball one a dog collar <laughs> yes i'm just joking. that's a good question. just joking about the dog collar but like you know have you thought like about um different papers or you know stationary aspects and and that's not to suggest you do it i'm just curious if you've thought about those things um you, you know on the dog collar just to, <laughs> just to hit that point real quick I think it's an interesting thing because with wax canvas, you know, you could do a lot of cool things with it. I did make um, a prototype for a keychain, for example. Okay. And so it's just a strap with uh, one of these buckles. It's a magnetic buckle, so it's easy to get your keys in and out. Um, and that's 
so I do consider things like that, including a dog collar, because I do have a dog. Yeah. Um, that said, even though I want to do, basically, I have more ideas uh, than I have time or money. Yeah. <laughs> so yep. I want to make all these things, but with limited capital, obviously, I can't do everything I want to do, um, unfortunately. So that's that's part of it. When it comes to stuff with paper, though, yeah, I've, I've certainly thought about a lot of different iterations. Um, colored paper, not so much because... Again, going back to our core users of fountain pens, they like to have the ink kind of shine through. Yeah. Um, so a nice white paper is perfect for that. So some notebooks have cream paper. And actually, that's one of the reasons why we chose white is because it shows every color a lot better than it, you know, a cream paper would. Right. So, um, you know, never say never. But in terms of our formats, certainly some of those are newer and have changed. For example, the planner format came about because people, they wanted more structure um, so that they don't have to create like create the, the calendar over and over in their notebooks, um, but still have some flexibility. So for example, with our planner refill, uh, we leave the dates blank, um, but then we do have the structure where you've got the week and you have the months. And the reason for that is because if you've ever journaled or written in a planner before, if you skip a week, for example, you don't want to just waste that space. Right. Or let's say you buy a planner in June when every planner starts in January, you know, that's, that's also not great. So <laughs> yeah. So we wanted to have maximum flexibility, but also structure as yeah, well. So that's awesome. So a couple of things that, that you mentioned, and you know, I know we're getting further into the interview and want to be respectful. I know you have things to do. I wonder if you might help us sort of understand and you describe your current sort of range of offerings. And then you mentioned that there's some things on the horizon, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. So maybe just sort of what you offer now for people who don't know and are going to explore. And then are there some things that you're kind of looking to actually produce? You mentioned a watch rule, et cetera. So I'm just curious about right. that. Yeah. So um, first, I think it's important to know who we try to serve. And really, it's for groups of people. It's people who are into journaling, um, people who are artists. So they like to sketch, paint with watercolors, uh, we have the fountain pen enthusiasts, but then we have people who are into everyday carry as well. And really, I fit all of those. Like I said before, I was just trying to make something that I would appreciate for myself. But if you look at those four different types, those groups as Venn diagrams, for example, there's a lot of overlap in different areas. So people who are into fountain pens, a lot of them are also into everyday carry, meaning they're willing to spend a considerable amount of money on a really nice pen but they do the same thing for a pocket knife or a flashlight, for example. And, and when you look at those groups, you also have an overlap of people who are into watches, you know, automatic mechanical watches. And um, so we wanted, and actually that's something that I've gotten into myself recently. So again, that's kind of me serving myself where I wanted to create a watch case that, um, you know, it's not a watch role. There are a lot of designs out there. I think um, ours is going to be unique in that you know you want something that protects your nice watches that organizes it but that's not too bulky yeah um so i think we do have something that'll serve that niche and when's that coming out that will be early next year okay um yeah probably it'll definitely be first quarter it's hard to yeah. put a date on it because we have so many supply chain issues right now but, right um but yeah, first quarter for sure. Yeah, is that hurting you some? Is that hard? Hard? For, it seems like it's hard for any business right now. Yeah, I think everyone's feeling the effect, and we certainly are also. Yeah. Well, it's it's fun to look forward to, and I definitely I can't wait for that. You 
can you tell us at all about your watch sort of obsession? I mean, there's, you know, we go from dogs to watches to everything in between. And, uh, you know, it's an interest of mine. I'm curious, have you picked up any watches or have your eye on anything particularly uh, that you'll put in your new tool, your watch role? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I haven't really started collecting too much, but I would say the first mechanical watch that I got early on, uh, several years ago now, was the Seiko 5. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's just a classic and it's a great entry level watch, I'd say. Um, more recently, I picked up a, uh, a Rolex Datejust Ooh. and that, yeah, so that was my first, like, you know, expensive watch. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I didn't grow up with money. So having to spend that kind of money was, it was a big jump for me, but, um, it, you know, we hit a milestone and I wanted to celebrate that. Yeah. It was just one of these watches I kind of, you know, always looked at. So, and what's um, the, what's the general like parameters of that one? What, what does it look like? Um, so that's the 41 millimeter, the, you know, the, the newer one, uh-huh. uh, it's got the fluted bezel, uh, the Jubilee bracelet, um, yeah, and, wow. and just the sticks. Yeah, that's fantastic. Dial, so. Did you get it engraved yeah. at all, or are you? I didn't. I was thinking about it, but yeah. um, ended up not doing that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's but cool. I love it. I wear it every day. You yeah, know, it's 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 nice to have a beautiful watch, um, and or one that you really like. I I mostly wear my, my boys got me a Seiko Five last year for Christmas, and um, I wear it all the time, and it's just fun knowing that that's a mecha- mechanical thing and. Um, regardless, they're beautiful objects and still have a place, I think, in the world. So, absolutely, and I, you know, I think that's where a lot of that overlap comes from from different people who can appreciate these analog things. So, we're all living in this digital world, obviously, and it's a great thing, technology. But it's also nice to take kind of a a vacation from that sometimes, yeah. and you know, put pen to paper in a journal or have a nice watch that doesn't require a battery, right? So. Um, just having that analog break in our day is is a beautiful thing. Yeah, and I think we're learning more and more how important it is neurologically and otherwise that that's not just a, a quaint uh, artifact that we return to, but actually it's important creatively. And I think you've emphasized some of those things um, through the products, right? That these are useful things for people to to do, even when they have an uh, you know an Apple Watch or whatever. That that's not necessarily the best course for the entire existence. So right, right. Well, I really appreciate. It. I have one last thing just to to ask you about is kind of where people can find your products, like your in your story, and 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 also it sounds like you have a a code for us, and we can we can help you um, just keep things rolling there. So what do you got? Yeah, absolutely. So it's lockb.com, L-O-C-H-B-Y.com. And I did want to pass a coupon code to your listeners. So it's going to be dogwatch10. If you enter that code at checkout, you'll get 10% off your first order. Great. Wow. Thank you so much for that. And and again, I, you know, this is a this is a uh, just a, an intellectual podcast. I just chose you. It's not a, a any kind of agreement here, but I do want to say like, boy, it's been fun to have those notebooks as uh, I've studied for a long time, notebooks and kept notebooks as a biologist, et cetera. And it's just a, it's a great experience. So thanks for creating that. Um, I know you've created them for creators, partly for people who like to do that. And it's just a great service to, to have access to them. So thanks for that. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks again for the time, Chris. Thanks for joining us on the Dog Watch. And um, we'll be looking out for the new product and checking out what you've got um, on the website. Thank you, Mike. This has been fun. 
Thanks again to Chris for helping us understand what is behind Lockbee and the production of these fantastic journals. Check them out on Lockbee.com and apply the discount code DOGWATCH10 at checkout. Also, don't forget to write a short review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe to The Dog Watch and send an email to onthedogwatch at gmail.com to be entered into a drawing once we reach 100 reviews. Our music credit today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. Until our next shift, this is Michael Canfield thanking you for joining us on The Dog Watch. Dog Watch.